Good morning. We're going to pick up where we left off in Mark today. It's been an extended break. I'm happy to be back in Mark. Over the holidays, we just finished 13. If you remember, Mark 13, Jesus had been speaking about weighty things, the destruction of the temple, the abomination of desolation, and his resurrection. And then the chapter ends with an extremely important word from Jesus for all of us. This is Mark 13, 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Well, we have a bit of a long passage today, so I'm going to echo these words. <laughs> stay awake. Don't fall asleep. We're very close to the end of Mark. And that means we're close to the cross. This is something to be read with reverence. We need to read with attentive eyes and with ears and hearts that are listening to God's words. Let's do that now. Let's read together. Mark 14, 1 through 26. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it all over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for my burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, to, thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Jesus, be with us today. Would you make this come alive to our hearts that we might see you as the Lamb slain in our place? We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I was speaking with somebody before the holidays and we were kind of laughing and joking about how family get-togethers can, can always uh, turn ugly very quickly, right? You always love, you know, hurt the ones you love the most. And we were, we were saying something, will, you know, an uncle or an aunt or a father will say something off color. Uh, a painful memory will be brought back up. You know, as my wife recalls, one family get-together, someone throws a punch. And, uh, you know, sooner or later, the meal is turned into a disaster. It can be awkward. Family gatherings can be joyful and full of laughter, but they can be so uncomfortable. If you've never experienced that, uh, you're missing out. You're missing out. Um, All that we've just read is charged with these emotions. This is a family get together. These are family meals and the atmosphere is, is teeming with suspense. As we put ourselves into the drama of each scene, we can, we can call to mind these emotions, right? These are human emotions, anger and awkwardness and, and, and love and all that's here. You see the characters come into play, the personalities. You have the chief priests, the scribes, they're plotting in some unknown back alley location. You have Simon, the leper's house, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We know them well. You have Judas, the disciples. And in the center of all of this, we have Jesus. From these scenes, I have three characters that I I think about. These are going to serve as our three points today. We have the lover, primarily Mary of Bethany, but also his disciples. We have the betrayer, Judas, primarily, but also the religious leaders. And then finally, above them all, we have the lamb, who's our blessed Lord Jesus. The opening statement here in Mark 14, 1 through 2, it gives us the background for what we're going into. This is, this is the evil lurking behind the scenes. The hatred has been churning. We've seen it for, for 14 chapters now. For 13 chapters, we've seen hatred and anger churning towards Jesus and growing for three years. The enemies of the Lord are plotting his death in the background. All the while, we have two suppers happening in the forefront. At the first supper, Jesus is the guest. But at the second supper, he's the host. You see, the end is at hand, and we feel it. The tension is there. Some are are more cognizant of this fact than others. But all here know something's about to break. Jesus has prepared them for it, hasn't he? He's told them time and time again. He has made them ready for this hour, and here we are. Now, before we join the first supper, I want to I peer into the shadows. Let's, let's step into the alleyway here, and let's see the enemies of our Lord. They are worthless men. We know that they're worthless men because the text tells us so time and time again. They are filled with hatred. They're filled with fear. And then we're, we're told they're filled with demonic glee. They hated Jesus with a hate that few of us can comprehend. They had murdered him in their hearts, 
countless times up to this point. And now they sought a way to make that murderous dream a reality. And the only thing that ever actually restrained their hatred was fear of men. Fear of the people, fear of the Romans. They were terrified of men. And this is what cowardly men do in our day and age. They have replaced the fear of God with the fear of everything else. Jesus rebuked their ideals all throughout his ministry. And their hatred of Jesus was ultimately one of having been shown their abject failure as leaders. He exposed their dark minds to the light. They despised him because of it. He had pulled back the veil, pulled back the curtain on their idea of religion in front of the people. But the very fact that such valueless men hated Jesus is actually a great tribute to him, isn't it? Great men and women all throughout history who have radiated the gospel have drawn the ire of those who love the darkness. Uh, there's a quote by Mary, Queen of Scots, speaking of the, uh, the reformer John Knox. She said this, she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. <laughs> she hated John Knox because he spoke truth, because he rebuked her publicly, because he re- revealed her darkened heart to the masses. You see, the greatness of men and women is not only revealed in the company they keep, but also in the enemies they make. And so these men are glad. They're glad when Judas comes to him, one of Jesus' own, oh, this is going to be great. One of Jesus' insiders has now come to us. Then verse 10, then Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. We'll give you money, Judas. This is wonderful news. They were supposed to be the moral leaders. They were supposed to be the spiritual paragons. And here they are giggling with demonic glee. Ooh, we're going to kill him. The son of God. We should not be surprised when the world hates us. When they hated him so well. Enough of them. We're not going to talk about them anymore. They're not going to waste our time on men like that anymore. Let us move to the lover's of Christ. If you're reading along, this is verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, I love that we have the four Gospels because each gives us a different perspective, a different window into each scene. You see, Matthew and Mark do not tell us who this woman is, but John does. He tells us this is none other than Mary of Bethany, who is the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. And here she comes and she just shows us, she exhibits her great understanding of who Jesus is. She she just knew him so well. She alone saw and knew that which none of the disciples had yet seen of Jesus. You see, how did she do that? Well, she had sat at his feet before. While Martha worked, she was sitting at his feet and listening. When Lazarus, her brother, dies, she once again finds finds herself to the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, oh, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, she knew 
Jesus. And she knew well enough that in the moment of desolation, in the moment of sorrow, when Jesus needed someone most, she found her way again to his feet to bless him. I just think about a woman's keen intuition of the heart, how uh, men, me in general, men in general, we're so slow at times to just to know when something's wrong. You know, what's wrong? Oh, something was wrong with that person. You know, and women are like, yeah, duh, something was wrong. Of course there was something wrong. It's, it's a blessing. It's a gift. And such understanding is beautiful. To fully understand what she's doing, we have to put ourselves in the room. So you can imagine you're sitting there, you're laughing, you're with friends, you're eating this meal, and suddenly you hear breaking. If you've been in a restaurant, you know a plate has broken, you hear a tray drop, everything goes silent. And your eyes are looking, oh, where did that come from? You, know, you can hear a pin drop. And your eyes search the room, and there's Jesus. Mary has broken a little vessel, and she's pouring nard on him, perfume and oil. Oh, great. Oh, great. What has Mary done this time? What is she doing? Why is she troubling the master? Old, you know, little impulsive Mary. Why can't she be like her sister Martha? And this is unthinkable. What she's done is unthinkable. She's broken this expensive flask filled with, with oil, it's fragrant ointment all over Jesus. This is inappropriate. It's improper. Oh, just wait till Jesus tells her. Tells her what's up. You can imagine you, there's, you know, you're speechless. How could she do this? And then all of a sudden you hear a clear voice ring out. And it's Judas. Oh, cool-headed Judas. Businessman Judas, why wasn't this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Yeah, that's right. Why wasn't it sold for 300 denarii? 300, did he just say 300 denarii? That's an entire year's worth of wages. And you know Judas knows money. He's the guy with the bag. He holds the bag. He's the church treasurer. And now everyone's scolding Mary. You heard Judas. Why did you do this? Of course, Judas, Judas was the thief, and he had the back. He could not understand this act of Mary. It was completely foreign to him. He had never known the depths of such impulsive love towards the Christ. John's gospel, again, gives us a little insight. This is John 12, 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Oh, more on Judas later. This love displayed by Mary was not cold. It was not calculating. It was not mechanical. It was not careful love. It was splendacious love. It was sublime and childlike in its presentation. It was a cross-shaped love which mirrors the love of Jesus himself. This is love without reserve. And this love action took her and brought her into true fellowship with Jesus. Not just in her proximity, but in cooperation with his gospel. In cooperation with his message and his whole life. And then Jesus sits there and he gives this incredible response in verse 9. Do not miss it. I read it, I read it, I read it. I had to keep tossing it over in my head because I don't think I've ever understood what's going on here. Listen to what he says. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, 
What she has done will be told in memory of her. Is that, is that not? Is that not remarkable? In Jesus' own words, he's saying, this is a wonderful truth about Mary's action. You see, in just a few days, there's Golgotha, there's the cross, there's the grave, and beyond it, the light of resurrection. And out of these tremendous moments in human history, the most tremendous moments of all time, comes the glorious gospel of grace. The gospel of, and what this woman did, Jesus says, will stand side by side forever. And so we need to stop and we need to ask, say, what? How? What was it in Mary's action that we should take notice of? How should we imitate her great heart? You see, the truth is, wherever this same prodigal, zealous, abundant, cross-shaped love is poured out to this day, we still stand in awe. And we are taken aback. How, How could someone love like that? Well, it's because the love of Christ compels us to do so. It compels us. John, again, he gives us this little detail. I love it. John 12, 3, he writes this. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Isn't that a wonderful little detail? You see, this is holy. This is what holy and godlike love smells like. We are jars of clay and we hold treasure inside of us. We hold the treasure of the glorious gospel, the message of hope for the world. And Jesus says, don't keep it bottled up. Break yourself. Break yourself and let the perfume out into the world. Let's notice a few things about Mary's heart. These are just a few takeaways for us. First, I want you to see how this holy woman and her holy act displeased the disciples. Now, these were holy men. These were were believers. These were good men, but they were upset by this. And you see, there are many pew warmers who love to sit on the bench of faith, but never really get in the game. If you're on fire for Jesus, you must not tone down your zeal to appease the tepidness of other believers such as these. I wonder how many Marys have we discouraged when we should have been imitating them. David leapt and danced for joy before his Lord, and Michal, Saul's daughter, frowned upon him. Even our Lord was called a madman for his zeal when he tossed tables. But you see, what was the difference? Mary had knowledge. Mary was at Jesus' feet. She knew him so intimately, she was close enough to see his very look She didn't care about their approval. She had Jesus' acceptance. If we are conscious of what we're doing, if we are sincerely offering our service and our sacrifice to the Lord, and we are approved of his service, then it is the smallest matter on earth what other men think about you. Who cares? Do not let them discourage you. If you want to escape all criticism in this life, I want to encourage you today, never rock the boat. I want you to take the longest road possible to heaven if that's what you're looking for. You and the snail can keep the same pace together. And everyone will say, you know, 
What a remarkable person there. What, you know, what, a, what a respectable and mild-mannered individual. But if you run hard for the finish line, if you hustle and sprint and set your heart and mind and soul and strength and you live full steam for Jesus Christ, you're going to be snubbed. You're going to be uninvited. You're going to be disliked by those who prefer lukewarm Christianity. Do not expose them to the light. Secondly, this is a glorious future-focused act. Mary's eyes had pierced the veil. Only a couple days prior to this, Jesus had rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. You remember this, the palm branches and on the donkey. And what did you do in the Old Testament with a king? What did you do to set apart a king in the service of God? If he was a king, he was anointed. And so Mary gives a royal anointing to her king. And not only for his kingship, but we're told this is for his impending funeral. You see, Mary has, has known what Jesus has been saying. What everyone else has, has, has thrown away or thought was just hyperbole. She heard him saying, I must go, I must die, I must do this. And she thought, I'm going to save. I'm going to pinch pennies. And I'm going to work hard. And I'm going to save all my money for this day. And I will have this little alabaster vase. And I will have my perfume. And I will give it to my Lord. It's intentional, it's deliberate, an entire year's salary for God. This precious, saint, this precious saint was not merely a hearer, she was a doer of God's word. And then I ask you all today, what holy deed will you do? What holy deed for Christ and his church, what future-focused outlook will you have? Are we preparing and saving up for the next generation, or are we, are we passing our sins down to them? What act can we even now be storing up in our hearts? Lord, how can I serve you? What, would you place something in my future that I might pour out your love upon it? How many hospitals, how many orphanages bear the names of saints all across the globe who had this future-focused mindset? Thirdly, it was a Christ-centered act. She was alone at his feet. She was gazing up at Jesus alone. She had spiritual blinders. And though everyone else murmured about her and scolded her, she remained silent. Charles Spurgeon, the pastor, he writes this. Silent acts of love have musical voices in the ears of Jesus. Sound no trumpet before you or Jesus will take warning and be gone. If we could all do more and talk less, it might be a blessing to ourselves at least perhaps to others. Let us labor in our service for the Lord to be more and more hidden as much as the proud desire to catch the eye of man. Let us endeavor to avoid it. You see what Spurgeon's saying is he must increase and we must decrease. And so I read this and my, my soul aches that I might be like Mary in this regard that I might think little of myself, that my eyes would be so transfixed on Christ, on his cross, that everything I say and do would be poured out for him. And you who are, are great lovers of Jesus, some of you have loved him so well and for so long. You who are washed in his blood today, 
What might you do for your Lord? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. If, if Peter had said, hey, Mary, you should go get the alabaster jar, it would have taken all, all of the flair out of it, all of the love, all of the passion. This was an impulse of her heart, and she had to do it. The final thing, very quickly to notice, is this is cross-shaped act. It's a cross-shaped act in the sense that it's a sacrifice. Uh, in this world, we have to sacrifice ourselves. You know, love is a sacrifice. Anytime you love someone, you are putting your heart on the line for them. This was costly. It was costly what she did. She was not only chided for her action, but this was financial loss. I love, I love Judas so much for this one thing, that he was quick enough with math to know exactly how much she had wasted. <laughs> If Judas had never included that, you see, Judas meant it to be a rebuke. A whole year's salary? And we go, a whole year's salary? Thank you, Judas, for telling us. We might have never known. And now we sit back and it's a testament to her love for Christ. Back in Mark 12, there's another woman like her, the widow who gives two mites, all she had in service to her God. You see, part of the glory of our service to Christ is that when we give him our sacrifice, we give him our best. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And so I am all about striving for excellence. I am all about Christian heroism. I want us to be model citizens. I want us to be, to be living such good lives among the pagans that they have no word to speak against us. Let us give the Lord our best. Sadly, we must leave Mary, and we must go to Judas. I'm not going to linger with him long. We're going to go very quickly over him, but he's the betrayer. It's always interesting to me. It's not surprising. In true crime documentaries, if anybody's a true, true crime fan, uh, something that people say is they go, you know, Bob was such a great guy. Who would have seen it coming? You know, the neighbor. Well, he was always quiet. He was upstanding. He was in his church. I think if, we, if they asked us about Judas, well, Judas was such a great guy. I mean, we, he was the best of us. He was businesslike. He, uh, we gave him the treasurer position. We gave him the bag. If he was in our church, he'd be a deacon. If, if I had known him, I would have handed my money to him with a smile. I would have let him babysit my kids. And this is a great warning to us because Jesus says there's always wolves among the sheep. There's always wolves that are among his flock. This is why when people say, you know, I was hurt by the church, what they, what they really mean is I was hurt by so-and-so in that church. I was hurt by a couple of wolves who had snuck in. These Judas types are masters of deception. They are self-righteous whitewashed tombs. But the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And the supreme master motivation of Judas's heart was greed. It was covetousness. He did not care about the poor. He feigned caring about the poor. It was self-righteous indignation. He was the thief and he carried the bag. Again, it's a great caution to us. How many of us deal with covetousness in our own hearts. It's such a subtle and crafty sin. 
and it just rears its head in the most unlikely of places. I have no doubt that Judas was good with money. I mean, he beat out Matthew. Matthew was the tax collector, and Judas somehow beat Matthew for that position. But you see, this is, again, another caution to us, because our greatest capacity also hides our greatest weaknesses. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. And I think the truth could be reversed. Where I am strong, there I am also weak. And so Satan loves to sleep temptation, to, to slip it into the realm of our greatest power and our greatest strength. And we say, there but for the grace of God go all of us. But was it covetousness? What, what was it that ultimately caused Judas to betray Jesus? I don't think it was greed. I don't think it was his covetous heart. I think it was a hardened, callous, sinful heart that he had opened long ago to the darkness, to Satan, and that was his downfall. We should marvel at that. Three years under Jesus. Three years under his teaching, named one of the twelve, and yet a coldness to, in the next chapter over, as we're going to read next week, he's going to kiss Jesus to betray him. Remarkable. Our time's short. We're almost done. I want to quickly move us to the Last Supper and to look at Jesus. Let us end with the Lamb. The disciples know the hour is close. The end is near. He's told us Jesus has warned them. And so in verses 12 through 16, he sends them off to go prepare this meal, to find this place to prepare the feast. And they all get in the room together for that final meal. They're eating, they're singing, and they're working through this wonderful Passover ritual, the thing they've done for generation after generation. And in the middle of that, Jesus gets up, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins washing his disciples' feet. And if you were in that room, if you were one of the disciples, your mind would go back to what? To Mary. And you would see it. And you would think about her. And all the times forward, when you modeled Jesus, you would think about that smell, that perfume, and the love of Christ. They continue the meal, emotions are high, and suddenly Jesus startles them all with a word, one of you will betray me. Again, the broken vase, the sound of something cracking. Who, Lord? Who is it? Who will betray you? Lord, is it I? Consider that question today for your own life. Is it I? You see, they at least knew their own hearts well enough to know it could possibly be one of them. Is that not amazing? Within the human heart, there is such a capacity for great and tremendous sin, and they knew it. Lord, is it I? Will I be the treasonous one? How many times, beloved, have you denied Christ in your own life? How many times have you loved sin over him? It is you. It is me. But he's the lamb. You see, self-righteous men can never ask this question. Self-righteous women can never ask this question. They think, of course it's not me. It can never be me. And I think, no, of course it could be us. I know my own heart. 
Jesus responds in verse 20, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. You better believe all the hands left that table. Except Judas. But surely it couldn't be the man with the bag. Surely it couldn't be upstanding, upright Judas. And Jesus, we're told in John, sends him away. And you know what all the disciples think? Good old Judas. He's going to go get supplies. He's actually going to go help the poor. We're sitting here feasting and he's taking care of business. Never Judas. Going back to the first supper. Jesus is hemmed in on every side by cruel hate. All the forces of darkness are plotting and converging against him. And in the midst of that darkness, the dark and desolate land, a woman, the heart of a woman springs forth rivers of water for our Lord. Heaven's light bursts through. And then at the second dinner, Jesus is now the host of this Passover feast. And it's just such a glorious and wondrous thing that's happening here. Tim Keller has a wonderful little commentary on Mark called King's Cross. And he goes at depth into this, so I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing a lot from him here. Listen to what he says. When we think about the Passover, we're thinking back to the Israelites' enslavement in Egypt. You will remember how God had sent a deliverer, Moses, to set his people free. And the plagues came one by one by one, but, Mo- but Pharaoh would not relent. Until finally that last plague arrived, the divine judgment, the death of the firstborn. And this death, this judgment came on every house, every house, Jews and Egyptian alike, unless your door was covered in the blood of the Lamb. This was a sign of your faith that God would indeed pass over you. You see, the choice for everyone that night was either a dead child or a dead lamb. Either the judgment fell on your family or it fell on a substitute. And this is how God chose to deliver his people. And then every year since, the Jewish people would get together. To this day, they would celebrate the Passover feast, the meal, and they would go through rituals and preparation. There was a special way, things you would recite, things you would do. And now we have Jesus, who's the great presider of the host He is over the Passover meal and he lifts the bread. And the familiar words, the thing they've heard all their life as children growing up, is not what they hear. Instead, Jesus speaks Mark 14, 22 through 25. And you can imagine the astonishment when Jesus leaves the script. And instead he says, this is my body. I am the bread of life that must be broken for God's people. And in doing so, he will lead the ultimate exodus, like Moses, for God's chosen ones. Then he takes the cup and he makes a covenant oath. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the covenant and the kingdom of God. He says this is the new covenant between God and us. And the basis of this relationship is going to once again be the blood of the Lamb. The substitutionary atonement of Christ will cover us so that divine judgment will pass over us. And that oath from Jesus is simply a promise. It's a promise that he's so committed to this task 
This is why we can have assurance of salvation for the one who has promised is faithful. Despite our unfaithfulness, he is faithful. Jesus says, I'm going to personally carry you and bring you to the, fa- to the Father's arms. And then we're going to sit at the table and we're going to feast. We're going to feast for all eternity. This is my body. This is my blood. Every single Passover lamb throughout history was aimed at that moment. It was aimed at the moment we celebrated last week when we sat here and we all took the cup and we all took the bread and we ate and drank Jesus. You see, in the supper, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus was making arrangements for a perpetual hour of tryst, a moment of pure love between himself and his lovers for all time. Every drop of blood, every ounce of blood spilt for hundreds upon hundreds of years was a type and a shadow of what he would do once and for all on the cross. So eat and drink and remember. All the Passover feasts prior to this required a lamb. You had to have a lamb for the Passover. But if you read the Gospels, what is never mentioned? A lamb. How do you celebrate Passover without a lamb? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was sitting at the table. And the same is true every time we take communion. The Lord is present with us. The lamb is at the table. This is a reminder being fed to us of Christ's unconditional love and commitment to us. Death will pass over you. God will have mercy upon you. When you get to heaven, the verdict, if you are in Christ, not guilty. That's a promise. Why? Because the blood has covered you. These communion symbols, uh, it's grape juice. (laughs) It's bread. There's no secret to it. And yet they invite us into great mysteries. And the activity of the memory is meant to bring about these emotional family meal gathering feelings. This is a reawakening of thankfulness. The portrait of a loved one in your house is not there to spark some sort of intellectual moment. It's there to inflame your emotion for that person. And so Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Very last thing, how does the feast end? I love how it ends. It ends with singing. And all the, all the disciples are singing with Jesus. Oh, I'd love to hear his voice. I'll hear it one day. But they're most likely singing Psalm 136, which is called the Great Hallel. And it's what we read today for our call to worship. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And over and over and over it says his steadfast love endures forever. And so they sing that final hymn together. And one day we too will sit at that table and we will sing together over the table which the Lamb of Glory himself will preside and he will sing with us. And there will be dancing and joy because his love does endure forever. Which are you today, I wonder? Are you the lover or the betrayer? You might say, Heath, If only Jesus were here today, then I would do this thing. 
If, if he were here, right here, I would cast my crown down. I would give him my riches and fall at his feet if he were here today. But he is here today. In all those who are in distress, he is with them. All those who weep and mourn, he is with them. The widow and the orphan. I was at uh, Jesse Beeler's graveside service. He was there. Jesus was with us. You lovers of Christ, break your alabaster jars. It'll be so beautiful to watch. And for all those who do not love Jesus, I pray that God would be merciful to you. I will not pronounce upon you curses. I will not pronounce upon you woes. I will tremble and I will weep for you. I'm sorry you should be deprived of such a love as this, that you might not know him. And I ask you, what has he done? What has Jesus done to you that you should hate him? You have blind eyes and you cannot see. You have deaf ears and you cannot hear his voice. I want God to be merciful to you. I want you to trust in Jesus today. This is your day. Let's pray.